So when we hypnotize people who are very hypnotizable in the scanner, three things happen. They turn down activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. That's part of what we call our salience network. It's a part of the alarm system in the brain mm -hmm. that if you hear a loud noise and you think it might be a gunshot and you pay attention over there, that's your salience network saying there's a mismatch between what should be going on and what is going on. You better do something about it. It's what social media uses to distract people. All right. Mm -hmm. So they'll float some little threat by or, you know, other girls are prettier than you are or whatever it is, something that makes you feel bad and you better pay attention to it. You turn down activity in that area. So it's allowing you to get into a state where you can focus attentively because you're less likely to be distracted. That's number one. What is up, my friend, and welcome to The Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at The Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest-performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. All right, Dr. David Spiegel, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. I really appreciate you. It's an honor to have you and uh, thank you. welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it's an honor to be here. I'm delighted to, to meet with you. So uh, I want to go and just let you know that uh, before we even spoke to each other, before even I spoke to your team, uh, I have been using Reverie Forum myself. Um, it was ever since, uh, I think it was the podcast that you did with Andrew Huberman yeah. and, um, and I downloaded it for myself and, uh, it, I have to say that we're going to get into the app, uh, later on into this interview, but I have to say it is literally one of the most simple yet profound changes that I have made to my life. And, uh, and also it's, uh, it's something that has had a tremendous impact just on the way that I view myself in the world. So I just want to say thanks again for coming out with that app. And and we're, we're going to be talking about that app. I have, I have a lot of curiosities. I have a lot of questions about it. Thank you so much, Dan. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And I appreciate your telling us. You're welcome. So I want to ask first, uh, what got you into hypnotherapy in the first place? Well, Dan, it's, it's kind of a genetic illness in my family. Um, my parents were both psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. And they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be. So here I am. Um, but my father um, was uh, when he was finishing his psychiatric training uh, just as World War II broke out. And uh, a Viennese refugee named Gustav von Aschaffenberg um, came over and wanted he couldn't serve in the army to fight the Nazis, but he wanted to do what he could to help. So he volunteered to train young doctors, young psychiatrists to use hypnosis. He was a forensic psychiatrist in Austria. He had a smallpox scar in the middle of his forehead. And he noticed that some of the prisoners he were in, was interviewing would suddenly just kind of lean their heads down and go into some altered state. And it looked like they were being hypnotized. So he taught my father how to use hypnosis. He used it uh, in combat to help people having combat stress reactions or to help with pain. Uh, when people were wounded. And uh, he came back and went back to train to be a psychoanalyst. But one of his supervisors said, you know, I want you to 
teach a course in hypnosis at the institute here, and you better teach it because I'm going to take it. And he found out after a while that he was getting better results using hypnosis with a few patients than he was doing four days a week psychoanalysis. And so gradually he shifted his practice uh, into hypnosis and the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. Um, and uh, I um, decided when I went to medical school um, to take a hypnosis course, I figured I better do, learn it formally. It sounds interesting. And my first patient, and this changed my life, uh, I was uh, doing a pediatrics rotation at Children's Hospital in Boston. And uh, the nurse said, Spiegel, uh, your next uh, case is in room 343. She's in status asthmaticus. She's having trouble breathing. She, they tried twice to give her epinephrine under the skin, didn't work. They were thinking about general anesthesia and starting her on steroids. And I walk in the room, I followed the sound of the wheezing down the hall. And there's this pretty redhead, 15-year-old girl, bolt upright in bed, knuckles white, struggling to breathe. I can hear the wheezing. Her mother's standing there crying. I didn't know what else to do. And I said, would you like to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. And um, I realized we hadn't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I came up with something very subtle and clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room and my intern comes looking for me and I figure he's going to pat me on the back and say, what the hell did you do? And instead he said, uh, the nurse has filed a complaint with a nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, as you might imagine, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that's not one of them. And her mother was standing next to me when I did it. And he said, well, you're going to have to stop doing this. Now, Dan, this is a situation where within five minutes, I could see that what I did seemed to make a real difference in this girl. And um, he said, uh, I said, well, wh why would I have to stop doing this? You know, he said, well, it, it could be dangerous. Mm. And I said, well, you were going to give her general anesthesia and you think my talking to her is dangerous. And he said, well, you're going to have to stop doing it. I said, I'll tell you what take me off the case if you want. But as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her something I know isn't true. And, um, you know, this is one of the problems with hypnosis, uh, Dan. It's the oldest Western conception of a psychotherapy. The first time a talking interaction was thought to have therapeutic benefit. And yet it's still a sideshow. It's still not taken mm -hmm. seriously 250 years later. And that really frustrates me. So, uh, the, he went back to the chief resident and the, he, they went to the attending and they had a, a, a council of war over the weekend and they came back on Monday uh, with a decision. They said, why don't we ask the patient, which was a radical. <laughs> and she said, you know, I like this. Now, she'd been hospitalized every month for three months in status asthmatic because she had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to be study to be a respiratory therapist. Mm -hmm. And I thought that anything that could help a patient that much, that fast, violate a non-existent Massachusetts law and frustrate the head nurse had to be worth looking into. And I've been doing it ever since. And, and part of why I do it is you can see it right in front of your eyes and in front of the patient's eyes. They will know within minutes whether it's likely to help them or not. And that's not true about many of the things that we do, that I do as a psychiatrist, as a physician. Uh, I do things, try to help people, but you usually don't know that soon whether it's actually likely to help. Mm. And I have a follow-up question to to this. And uh, 
I, I'm coming at this from a layman's perspective as someone that just sure. uses hypnotherapy, but doesn't necessarily know what it is and what the mechanisms are. Now, I have this question where it's like, how much of our pain is more psychosomatic or the pain and injury that we face is more psychosomatic as opposed to uh, actual pain and injury? Well, uh, Dan, uh, it's a very interesting question because um, pain is both. It's a, it, it is the interpretation of signals that come from the body when you've you know sprained your ankle or broken your arm or something mm. and what the brain makes of it when these signals come in the brain gets all kinds of signals coming in we see things i'm looking at you you're looking at me there's a little noise in the background there are other things going on the brain decides is it worth paying attention to and if it is what is it so the way i think of this is that the strain and pain lies mainly in the brain the signals come in but you know uh, you you train people you know that uh, there are athletes, there are like football players who, who come off the field and the coach looks at their swollen ankle and says, you know, I think you broke your ankle. Mm. And they were so intensely focused on the game that they didn't notice that they had broken their ankle. A lot of people will say that after very bad injuries, that it took a while for it to begin to hurt. Um, and so it's a combination of the signals coming through the lateral spinothalamic tract up through the thalamus to the somatosensory cortex and the way the brain interprets it. And there's a lot of room for variation in what you experience. And hypnosis is one of the things that can help you to modulate those pain experiences. Now, we're using the term hypnosis uh, a lot right now, but I'll tell you right now, like when I posted, I actually posted that I'm going to be talking to you and I had mm -hmm a lot of responses back based on, because mm. I asked them what questions you want to ask. Now, I'll tell you right now, um, some of them were, a lot of them were good faith, like 90% of them. Um, the 10% were just like, hey, ask him if he's feeling sleepy, you know, and, and then the whole stage, <laughs> like hypnosis uh, type of thing, right? <laughs> so can you give us a uh, the definition of clinical hypnosis as opposed to stage hypnosis? Thank you. Yeah, I have to wake myself up first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, stage hypnosis, it just it, it bothers me because it's mm -hmm. using the phenomenon, a real phenomenon to make fools out of people, you know, to have the football coach dance like a ballerina and all that. And uh, it saddens me that that's often what people think of when they think of hypnosis. And the worst misconception, Dan, is that it, it, it gives people the impression that hypnosis is losing control, mm. that this guy is going to make take control over me and make a fool out of me in front of all these other people. Hypnosis, you know, we're social creatures. We're susceptible to social influence in all kinds of ways. Um, but what hypnosis really is, is a state of highly focused attention. It's like the state that I'm sure you go into when you're in the middle of a workout mm -hmm. and you're just into it and you're feeling how your body's reacting, you're enjoying it. You're not thinking about what you have to do next. Uh, you're not worrying about something that's going to happen tomorrow. You're, you're narrowing that focus of attention. It's like looking through the telephoto lens of a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. Hypnosis is a special state of intensified learning. You can 
Focus on what you want to focus on. To do that, you have to do the second thing, dissociate, put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. Um, and, and that's relatively easy to do. We do it all the time. You're sitting in a chair now. Hopefully, you weren't thinking about the sensations in your body touching the chair. If you were, we can stop the interview now. Um, so the more intent you are in the focus, the less aware you are of the periphery. That makes sense. The third thing is what people fear, suggestibility. The idea that if, you know, there's that terrible movie, what is it, uh, Get Out, you know, with the, mm. I don't know if you've seen it, yeah. with the woman, you know, banging the teacup and the guy. It, it really is a kind of cognitive flexibility. It's saying, and, you know, one of the things where I think there is a, a natural alliance between what you do and what I do is you sort of, you say, fix, fix your life from the body up, you mm -hmm. know, get your body in shape and your life will, will change. Um, the same is true in the brain with hypnosis. You disconnect from your usual way of thinking about who you are and what you do and why you do it. And that allows you to just try out being different and see what it feels like. Mm -hmm. You know, I could do this. I could have the same arthritis, but experience the pain differently. I had a woman the other day uh, uh, that I was treating remotely who has had arthritis for years, terrible pain. She rated it four out of 10 when we started, chronic pain. Um, and I had her imagine doing something that gives her physical pain relief, just taking a warm bath. Mm -hmm. And imagine floating in a, in a warm bath or a hot tub. And by the end of it, she said, I don't have any pain. Now, she's had arthritis for years, but she was able to reprogram her brain to put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. So that third part of hypnosis is a way of trying out being a different person who can experience, you know, that the, you've got arthritis, you know what's going on, but experience it differently. And mm -hmm. people have a remarkable capability to do that. So... Absorption, dissociation, and cognitive flexibility is what hypnosis is all about. This leads me to a little bit of a curiosity, which is a sense of like, so let's just say that the woman with arthritis doesn't feel or, or feels less pain or even no pain. Um, what happens when, let's just say the pain is still there and you're, you're operating in the sense where there is no pain? Does that make the actual the actual living of life better doesn't make the pain worse over time. Like that's oh yeah. no, you know it. It absolutely makes your life better. Mm. Uh, now you know if you're having crushing substernal chest pain and having trouble breathing, obviously go to an emergency room. Right, you don't just treat the pain. But mm. um, for many, you know, part of the problem that we all have is we're pretty pathetic physical creatures. You know, we're not very big. We're not very strong. We're not very fast. We were more often prey than predators uh, before we had weapons. And and um, so th there was a time when both being aware of pain was important because you had to know if you were hurt, but also being able to control it was important mm -hmm. because uh, predators detect motion. And if you're able to just be lie quietly, even if you're in pain, that might have survival value. Um, so interpreting the pain is very important. We tend to treat all pain as if it were acute pain. Mm. If you just broke your ankle, do something about it. But after a while, the signal is redundant. It's not doing you any good. And yet it's annoying. And think about the, the more you the more you get annoyed by it, 
the worse it gets. Mm. You know, it's like the noisy kid in the classroom. You know, he can disrupt everything else. And so you want to be able to reach a kind of new accommodation. I know it's there. I know what I have to do about it. I know what I have to do to protect my body. But at the same time, I don't have to pay any more attention to it than I want to. And so our brains have tremendous capacity to, to redeploy attention, to focus mm. on what you want to focus on and put aside everything else. And that's, that's an advantage that we have that we don't make enough use of. And we have this fantasy that the only way you can modulate pain is with drugs like opioids. And that's a dangerous mistake. Mm -hmm. um, 30,000 Americans a year in the past 10 years have died from opioid overdoses. That's horrifying. 300,000 in 10 years. It's not necessary. There are safer ways to help people deal with particularly chronic pain. This, this leads me to another question, which is, what exactly would your relationship be to, say, pain relieving medications, as opposed to using something that is more organic and holistic like hypnotherapy? Well, my, my, my go-to default is to see whether hypnosis works. One of the nice things about it, Dan, is, you know, the worst thing that happens is it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's not great. That happens sometimes, but okay, that's fine. But nobody has ever died in a hypnosis overdose. You know, it just it doesn't happen. So my my take with people is try it. Try mm -hmm. it with me. Try it with Reverie or hypnosis app um, and see if it helps you. And if it does, use it. And it may be you'll use it in combination with other treatments. Certainly, my first obligation as a physician is to make sure that people have attended to the problem and fixed what's fixable uh, from a physical point of view. But um, we, we, I think in medicine in general, are over-biased toward intervention and thinking of the body as if it were a broken car, you know, mm. replace the parts or, you know, fix them. Um, and not enough to recognizing that our major evolutionary advantage is this three-pound organ on the top of our shoulders. And it helps, it regulates every part of the body. Um, and it's, it's a tremendous opportunity to to detect and control problems that are going on in the body and do something about them with not necessarily changing the body parts or fixing the body parts once you've done what you, what you need to do. So, you know, the big problem we have, uh, Dan, is our, it, it's a very powerful organ, the brain, but it does not come with a user's manual. You know, we so there are many things we can do with our brains that we don't fully understand and learning to use them better is a tremendous asset. So I have a I have a two part question based on that right now, um, and and one of the things that comes to mind is like okay, so what happens to the brain when it is under a clinical hypnotherapy session? And then the second question would be, how do people know whether or not they're susceptible to being hypnotized in the first place? Okay. Two excellent questions. So we've done functional magnetic resonance imaging studies of people in hypnosis in the scanner. So MRI is a very powerful technique with elegant uh, physiological focus. So you know exactly where things are happening. It can detect changes in blood fly and oxygen uh, levels uh, and blood flow in very specific regions in the brain. So when we hypnotize people who are very hypnotizable in the scanner, three things happen. They turn down activity in the anterior cingulate cortex. 
that's part of what we call our salience network. It's a part of the alarm system in the brain mm -hmm. that if you hear a loud noise and you think it might be a gunshot and you pay attention over there, that's your salience network saying there's a mismatch between what should be going on and what is going on. You better do something about it. It's what social media uses to distract people. All right. Mm -hmm. So they'll float some little threat by or, you know, other girls are prettier than you are or whatever it is, something that makes you feel bad and you better pay attention to it. You turn down activity in that area. So it's allowing you to get into a state where you can focus attentively because you're less likely to be distracted. That's number one. Number two, there's increased connectivity between the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is part of what we call the executive control network. It's the part of my brain that hopefully is working right now as I'm talking to you. And a part of the brain called the insula, which is also in the salience network. It's a mind-body conduit. So it's a place in the brain where you can control things that are going on in your body better and where also you become more aware of what's happening in your body, interoception. And that's very important because, for example, one of the problems people have with stress and anxiety is they, get, they see something that stresses them and then they notice changes in their body, which are predictable. Your muscles get tight, you start to sweat, your heart rate goes up, your respiration rate goes up. And then you notice that and you think, oh, my God, this must be really bad. And so you get more anxious and it's like a snowball rolling downhill. So hypnosis can be very helpful working from the body up, mm. calming your body first and then saying, now I'm in better shape to deal with the stressor that's worrying me. So that mind-body connection is, a, is activated in hypnosis. The third thing that happens is you disconnect to the extent that you're focusing on what you're doing in hypnosis from a back part of the brain called the posterior cingulate cortex. The cingulate cortex is like a C resting on its edges in the middle of your brain. And the posterior part is what we, part of what we call the default mode network. Um, it's what you're thinking about when you're not actively engaged in something else. And so it's like, who am I? What am I? How do people feel about me? Um, and it's a way of, uh, that sort of consolidates your identity. Um, if you're inhibiting activity in that area, it cuts you off. It dis disconnects you from thinking, well, how could I possibly do this? How could the pain change even though I've got the same arthritis that I had before? Um, and so it allows you to try out being different and see what it feels like. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call cognitive flexibility. You're not, you're not constrained by your usually way of thinking, usual way of thinking about things. So Absorption, dissociation, and cognitive flexibility are the three things that we can demonstrate in the, in the brain. Um, now, you asked also about hypnotizability. About mm. it, it is the case that not everybody uh, is equally hypnotizable. Um, uh, some are more than others. The peak period for hypnotizability in the human life cycle is the latency years in childhood. What that means is that all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. You know, you know that if you call your kid in for dinner, they don't hear you, you know. They're... And it also means that for them, work and play are all the same thing. It's a wonderful thing about childhood. You know, you just engage yourself deeply. It's a time in life when it's easy to learn a language. We were in Paris for six months on a sabbatical when our kids were in that age. And they came away with far better accents in French and, and speaking it much better than I ever will. Um, and so it's a, in a way, what hypnosis is, is a way of intensifying learning, making it a, a totally absorbing, engaging experience. And 
when we go through adolescence where we acquire what are called formal operations, where logic becomes more important and experience less important, um, some of us lose that hypnotic ability, not everybody. By the time you're 21, how hypnotizable you are is is as, as stable a trait as IQ over a 25-year interval. It just doesn't change that much. And what we see in functional imaging is that uh, highly hypnotizable people have more functional connectivity between the executive control network and the salience network. So they work together. Uh, and that allows you to get yourself deeply absorbed because the, the part of your brain that is thinking is well connected to the part of your brain that tells you what to think about, what to worry about. And so it's a stable trait, but most, most adults are at least somewhat hypnotizable. About two thirds are at least somewhat and about 15% extremely hypnotizable. Gotcha. And then, so I have, we were talking about our, our kids before this. Uh, I have two daughters. Um, one is three and the other one is 10 weeks. Super new. Whoa. Yeah. Congratulations. Like, we're, we're, we're in, thank you. Especially thank you. to your wife. <laughs> thank you. We're in the, we're in the throes right now of, <laughs> oh, yeah. of newborn baby life right now. Um, Got it. Yeah, we're getting we're getting grandma over here uh, to help us out. <laughs> <Pretty soon. laughs> That's <a> good idea. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm asking this for my daughters. Um, what can we, or actually myself as well? What can we do to keep their, uh, to keep that? I, I forgot what you called it, but just to keep that that kind of like um, living, not necessarily in a trance, but to have that susceptibility for hypnosis, to have the cognitive flexibility. What can we do for them as kids right now to, to keep that open by the time they're 21 years old? That's a great question. Cherish childhood. It's wonderful. Yeah. And, and the playfulness that children have is also learning. It's, it, it, yeah. it's their way of engaging with the world and taking in the world and making sense of it and understanding it. And I think the biggest mistake we make is trying to turn children into little adults, mm. you know, we got enough time to deal with adulthood when we're stuck with it, you know, okay. but the, the playfulness, the engagement, and, and there are actually research studies, Dan, that show that children who have had more experiences of what are called imaginative involvements, where, you know, you read them a bedtime story or you make up a story with them or you, mm -hmm. you know, go and, you know, look at an animal and say, I wonder what that animal thinks of us or something. When you're, when life is engaging and playful, that actually is a way of preserving that intensive, playful, intensified learning that children are so good at. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easier for them to reconnect with that even as they yeah, go. I've had, I've had a little bit of, um, I'm not going to say issue, but kind of playing around with, uh, I've heard this thing from someone before, which is like, I talk to my kids like adults. And then I've had a little bit of an issue with that because I'm just like, no, nah, I, I mean, I, I would want my kids to be kids. And to live that life a little bit. You're, you're exactly right. The worst thing you can do is talk to them like adults. They'll have yeah. plenty of time <laughs> to have to be stuck with being an adult like the rest of us. Um, but childhood is just such a magical, special time. And, and you know what it does also? Do yourself a favor mm -hmm. because it allows you to get in touch with the child still in you. And that's a wonderful thing. And I can tell you as a grandparent, I just love that. I love just talking with the kids, you know. And I, my daughter called me last night because our granddaughter was having some pain and she was kind of upset and crying and very upset. And so I was trying to tell her what to do and diagnose the pain and all that. 
And I said to her, you know, Lila, you know what I would do if I were there right now? She said, what? I'm just crying. I said, I would tickle you, you know, <laughs> and she starts to laugh. And it's, it, 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 you know, it was helpful to her to kind of refocus her from the pain. But it was also, it was fun for me, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to be with a child allows you to reconnect. And you'll notice that we even change the way we speak. You're talking to your, to a young child. You begin to talk with more modulation of volume and change in tone because it's, it's your inner child talking to the child. And that's a treat. And it's, it's really worth developing and enjoying yeah, it's uh, the the ability to interact with a child allows us to actually interact with ourselves when we were children and get back to that that level. Um, That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly uh, right. As an aside, every every day uh, I spend basically like an hour a day with my uh, daughter going to the pool, and we play all sorts of games. But then after those games, like I she, I'm doing it for her, but I'm actually doing it for myself as well when I come right. back from there. Um, You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, I want to know the actual, there's two things, actually. I'll, I'll get to the first one. So we talked about the fact that your dad, and I'm guessing yourself, were seeing better results doing hypnotherapy as opposed to doing talk therapy, right? And it, it was certainly faster and for certain kinds of problems. There, okay. are, there are other things where talk therapy is the thing to do. But. So can you can you dive into that a little bit? So where which things would talk therapy be beneficial for? And then which things would people really want to lean into when it comes to hypnosis? Well, I would say I, I often start with hypnosis when there is a clearly defined and focused problem, like managing pain, like managing stress, uh, like stopping smoking or eating with respect for your body. Um, like an acute uh, we problem. We even use it to, I'm sorry? Like an acute yeah. problem? Like it's yeah. like, an acute okay. problem. And those are things where Reverie uh, has programs, interactive programs that can help you see whether that can help or not. So, and, and there are times when uh, there are other kinds of problems like depression, for example, where uh, various combinations of talk therapy and medication are often the most effective thing to do for more serious post-traumatic stress kinds of problems. Sometimes hypnosis can be very helpful, uh, but sometimes you need more ongoing talk therapy about it and what it does for interpersonal problems, people having marriage problems or other things. Mm -hmm. Often talk therapy is what you need to do. Um, but the nice thing with hypnosis for me is that I can often start there. And if we solve the problem, fine. Been nice seeing you. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. If not, you've formed a kind of therapeutic alliance because they can already see you've helped them. And that enhances their belief that other things you do are going to help them as well. So when it comes to, let's just say, like Reverie or using an app like Reverie or maybe going to someone like yourself, what, what are the main differences between that? Uh, personally, I've done both. Uh, mm -hmm. I like the accessibility of Reverie, and I do feel like it is effective. It has been effective for me. I've done going to the person that does hypnotherapy as well, and you know they give me like a audio or whatever it is. But but what are like the main differences between both? And can one just use the app as opposed to paying five hundred dollars an hour to you know talk to someone that's 
is it qualified? Do they do they actually have like certifications around this? There are. Well, the, the main thing, if you're going to someone who's going to diagnose your problems and take responsibility for treating you, it should be someone who's a licensed and trained professional, psychologist, physician, mm-hmm. dentist, whoever, uh, and, and who has training in hypnosis. And there are number of professional hypnosis societies that do provide training, the Society for Clinical and Experimental Hypnosis and the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. You can reach them on websites for referrals and things like that, or your own doctor can perhaps refer you. I do recommend seeing someone who's licensed and trained. Um, uh, On the other hand, uh, I would say the nice thing about Reverie, uh, which you can download from the App Store or Google Play, depending on the kind of smartphone you have, is that it's there when you want it. You know, I, I, when I, I was do, starting this at the beginning of the pandemic a few years ago, um, I was thinking I wanted – I've used hypnosis with some 7,000 people in my career. That's a lot of people. But I'm thinking we can use app-based technology to help so many more people in a hurry. And the nice thing is it's a great place to start. And if it works, good. You know, you've solved the problem or you know how to manage it. If it doesn't, then you might want to step up and go go somewhere else. But I was thinking one day we made Reverie interactive because I didn't I just listening to a long, boring tape didn't sound that interesting to me. That would be putting people to sleep, not hypnotizing them. Um, but it's interactive. So I say, is your hand floating in the air? Do you feel the difference in sensation if they say Yes, they get one instruction. If they say no, then we help them with that some more. So it, it, it's more personalized. The, what you hear depends on how you're responding to what you heard just before. That's a good thing. And I was thinking, you know, I'm trying to make this as almost as good as it would be if they were in my office. But in some ways, it's better because hopefully when you wake up at three in the morning and are having trouble going back to sleep, I'm not there in your bedroom with you. And so but I am with my with your smartphone and so you can have it whenever you need it wherever you need it and so in some ways there are real advantages and as you say it's a whole lot less expensive and sometimes uh you can use it to really deal with a problem that is that is troubling you so that's why i did it i just wanted to make it as available as as possible dan and you know, the other thing is, you know, people worry, you know, will somebody go get stuck in a trance? Mm-hmm. Well, we've had hundreds of thousands of people using it and it hasn't happened, you know, because hypnosis is really all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. I'm just teaching you how to use a skill that you have just the way you train people to use the, a structured program to in, enhance their bodies. And it'd be nice if they were with you doing it and you do that, too. But as you see, too, people can enhance their sense of their own mastery of their body and their lives by learning from you how to do it. And that's we're doing the same thing with hypnosis. We're trying to teach people how to use an ability they have to intensify their focus. And we, we even have actually a pre-workout uh, script in, in, in Reverie where we get people to sort of tune their bodies as if you were tuning your guitar before you're performing you know? plan to experience this this new sense of how you relate to your body and so on you're, you're I can speaking see my language understand. you're speaking my language right now i'm, I'm going right. to be using that for sure um <laughs> <laughs> have you uh I'm, I'm pretty sure like because reverie has reached a lot of people can you share some of the i guess you could say like miracle stories that that you've heard from the from people actually using the app um sure um we've had uh uh people who have told me, we had one woman who was 
upset that the app didn't seem to be working right. Um, and she said, I haven't slept as well in 15 years. You know, mm. it finally, I've been struggling with sleep all my life. We have people uh, with, with significant pain problems who just say, I can, I can control it now. You know, it doesn't control me. Mm. I can control it. <laughs> we had a woman uh, who um, tried, who wanted to use it to stop smoking. And um, she said, you know, I've smoked for 25 years. I kind of like smoking. You know, I didn't want to stop. Mm. But I thought, ah, let's see what happens. So the first time I tried it, I didn't like it. Didn't work. That night I went home and tried it again. I lit up a cigarette and I said, who needs this? And what we're telling people to think about in hypnosis on the app is for my body, smoking's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So you focus on what you're for, not what you're against. So you don't focus on the urge to smoke. Sure, we have all kinds of urges, most of which we hopefully don't act on. Mm. But in, in the same way you help people rebuild their lives by rebuilding their bodies, um, we get people to focus on respecting and protecting your body the way you respect and protect your little girls. You know, mm. you would never think of putting tar and nicotine into their lungs. Well, you know what? Your body is as dependent on you as your little girls are. And so... Think, and you can feel better the minute you do that. So, so this this uh, woman who used Reverie said, you know, uh, this is some kind of crazy ass voodoo shit. She said, <laughs> she said, I mean that in a good way. <laughs> she said, and she's now she, her friends can't believe she stopped smoking. She's going around helping her friends stopping smoking. So people, can, when they get it, they really get it, and and so it's no longer a struggle for her. She's proud of what she's doing. Well, I'd like to share uh, something that I've done uh, with Reverie, which actually sure. which actually happened as an accident. So um, it actually was two things. So the first one was, uh, I think I I forgot which uh, which uh, track I listened to, but I was listening to a track, and I think it was based on uh, I think it was based on weight loss, or it could be something else, but then. For some ungodly reason, I stopped drinking alcohol. Like I wasn't necessarily addicted to it. It was something that I was doing on a weekly basis. I've done it pretty much since like I was in my teens and twenties. But then there came a point where I was just like, I, I, what's the point of this? Like I don't, I don't get this. And 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 then I, I, I put myself under a challenge. I'm, like, I'm just gonna like just stop drinking alcohol and see exactly what happens. And one of the things that I think is happening is like this change in identity where I just, I love the idea where you are for things rather than against things. So instead of me being like, I don't want to drink alcohol, it's more so like I have the identity where I want to put uh, nutritious nutrient dense things in my body to, yes. to get energy, to, to be healthier. And I, and I love that kind of like little bit of a switch for the identity. Uh, and the second one definitely was the weight loss one, which is like after having my daughter or having uh, our our newborn daughter, uh, I was lacking sleep, appetite was up, I was starting to eat like you know candy and all this kind of stuff. My weight was going up, and then I was just like, okay, well, I need to get this under control. And you know, it's it's not necessarily enough for me to just like be like, all right, you know, discipline Dan and let's do this. I was like, okay, well, let's let's you know recruit some tools here, and then I used Reverie, and again with Reverie, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things that just keeps on coming in my mind is like, eating is fine, but overeating is a poison, right? 
Um, and, 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 and again, it's like moving towards things that are more, uh, for the person in the body that I want rather than against the things that, uh, that I'm against. So that's just something I have to say. It's like your, your app is so accessible. And I think that's the reason why you made it in the first place. That's absolutely right. That's why I did it. It warms my heart to hear you tell these stories and, uh, and that's exact. you got the exact message, which is focus on what you're for. And what you were able to do, Dan, is affiliate your, you know, rather than seeing yourself and your body as suffering because you had a new child, you connected the part of your brain that was engaged in being a good father and nurturing and protecting your little girl and hooking that into the way you felt about your body and do the same thing for your own body. And it's natural, you know, you're, you're strengthening these, these uh, naturally respectful and protective elements in your brain. And why not apply it to your own body while you're happening to do it uh, with your daughter? That's exactly the thing to do. And it's not a struggle when you do it that way. It's you're focusing on what you're for and treating your body the way you treat your little daughter. And that's terrific. And, And now that we're talking about it, it just seems logical because uh, a lot of people think about what they don't want to happen. And it's kind of like saying, Hey, don't look at the pink elephant or don't, don't right. think of a pink elephant, but that's exactly where their, their thoughts and their brains are going to when you say something like that. So now you're that's it. pointing it towards something where, where it's actually more positive. Right. It's an, and, and as you said, you know, your general strategy for helping people rebuild their bodies and their lives is good nutrition into your body. And the obvious thing is don't put into your body things that may be harmful to it. Mm-hmm. And you could affiliate with that and feel good from the moment you did. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I feel so terrible. I can't have this. I can't mm-hmm. have that. And you're already losing if you're doing that. Instead, mm-hmm. you want to set up something. The best way to change behavior is intermittent positive reinforcement. And so you want to be able to feel good about what you're doing from the moment you start doing it. You know, good for me. I'm treating my body with respect. I'm eating with respect. I'm putting good nourishment into my body. And and that's positive reinforcement. You know, you feel good from the moment you start. And and that's the way you tell people, you know, you're rebuilding your life from the body up. You know, that's what you're doing. And that's what you did. And And that's a great way of helping people to enjoy adhering to a new way of living. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the big part of like what we do is, is literally change the identity and change the way in which they interact with the world, the way in which they perceive the world in general. Now, let's just say that, um, you know, someone had an acute problem. They want to stop smoking. They want to lose weight, uh, or, or something of the, uh, something of that sort. What protocol would you get them to do in terms of like using reverie to, to make that happen? Um, we have specific protocols to stop smoking. Um, and we have one for eating well, eating with respect for your body. You know, one of the other things that people don't realize is that the amount you eat, uh, it has nothing to do with how much you enjoy eating. And most of us, um, who, you know, do other things while we're eating, watch television or something else, you don't even notice what you're eating. And you'll notice that the first bite you take of a new dish you will remember a lot more than the next five or 10 or 15. Eat like a gourmet. Mm -hmm. Savor the texture, the aroma, the flavor, the the color, the smell of the food, 
and make it a total experience. And you can actually eat less, but enjoy eating more. Um, and I re remember when I was in medical school, we saw a family come into this Chinese restaurant we were at, and they were huge. I mean, they were very, the, the chef looked nervous back in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and I thought, well, we're going to get to watch them do what they do, you know. And so they brought in platters of food. And it was the most joyless mechanical eating I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. They were just shoveling food in their mouths and not savoring it at all. So it, it occurred to me that how much you enjoy eating has nothing to do with how much you eat. So get good, flavorful food and fully enjoy it. So you eat with respect for your body. You eat like a gourmet. And, and you don't fight food. You, in fact, engage it and make sure that you get the most enjoyment you can out of the food you eat. Because then also you're listening to your body's signals when it's full. So eat, eat when you're hungry. Diets are terrible things. You know, yeah. all they do is teach you to ignore your body's signal. They don't last. They don't work. Mm -hmm. So you eat when you're hungry. And the minute you're not hungry anymore, stop eating. And if you get hungry again in an hour or two, fine. Have some more food and enjoy eating that. But your body is sending you satiety signals. Pay attention to them. How often should one listen to a, a, a track or a protocol? <laughs> Uh, I tell people at first, um, uh, you know, every one to two hours, if it's a serious problem, if you're mm -hmm. struggling with stopping smoking, for example, or uh, you're feeling stressed, um, and anytime you have an urge to, to eat uh, something you, you would rather not eat, or um, uh, if you're dealing with drinking or other kinds of habit problems, Whenever you have the urge, don't fight it, admit it, but sit down or lie down and do the self-hypnosis. And you can do it for just a minute or two. It's just a way of reconnecting with that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. um, for sleep, if people are having trouble sleeping, I suggest to them that they do it when they go to bed, go into a state of self-hypnosis, get your body floating in a bath or like a hot tub or floating in space. And things that are preoccupying, you just project them onto an imaginary screen like you're watching a movie but not, don't let it get to your body in the same way. And do the same thing if you wake up in the middle of the night. So it depends on the problem and when it pops up. But in general, it's good at first to make it a regular practice at least three or four times a day so that you, you know how to do it and if you know what it feels like when you're in that state. Yeah, it's, it's the repetition of, of thought as well. It's just having the repetition of those thoughts go through your mind. Uh, the more reps, uh, the better. It's just going to push you in the right direction. Now, yes, yeah, okay. I have uh, some questions from Twitter. Um, one of them being, are are you feeling sleepy? Uh, <laughs> we're gonna skip that one. But <laughs> if you don't know by now, <laughs> yeah. I hope um, I'm not acting sleepy. <laughs> yeah, and one thing I will say, uh, like for me, this is like surreal because uh, I'm guessing you have people tell you this, like people use the app and then actually talk to you in real life, where it's like. It's literally hearing your voice and having a conversation with you while at the same time hearing the app and, and getting, I'm not going to say hypnotized, but being guided by you through the hypnotic, uh, through, the, through the session. So it, it's super surreal right now. Okay. Um, first question is, uh, how much has your work been influenced by Milton Erickson? Has it been influenced by Milton Erickson? I did preliminary research on him, but you can answer this one. It, it, he seemed like you would know this person. Yeah, sure. I've met Milton Erickson. Um, he uh, and he and my father interacted quite a bit, actually. Uh, 
he showed up once before the hit my father's course at Columbia and he was Milton was trying to hypnotize everybody all the time. That's what he did. Mm-hmm. And so he's standing at the he my father invited him to have breakfast with him before he, they went to the course for him to teach. And he stands there smiling alone in the hallway and said, hi, Herb, I brought Betty with me. Now, Betty was his wife. And Dan's looking around and he doesn't see Betty, you know, and he stands there smiling. And then my father notices he's wearing one of these bolo ties. He mm-hmm. lived in Phoenix. And there was a picture of Betty in the center of the, the tie clasp. And so that was his way of getting you off balance from the minute he met you, you know, and said, you know, and my father's thinking I only had breakfast for two, you know. <laughs> so Milton, his whole thing was that he thought the unconscious mind could solve all problems if you just shut off the conscious mind. And um, so he tried to confuse people. You know, if somebody didn't want to be hypnotized, he would say, well, I'm going to hypnotize your friend, John. And he would go into this long induction. He thought you had to do a long induction to really get someone hypnotized. He thought he could hypnotize everyone, which just isn't true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I have great respect for him because he was one of the few physicians in the early part of the last century who was carefully and responsibly using hypnosis. And he had the, the, the heart of a healer. He wanted to help people all the time. But I didn't agree with a lot of his thinking. And one of them was that, you know, I figure if my unconscious mind could have solved my problems, it would have by now, you know. And I don't think consciousness is not the enemy. It's a, an ally. And so I just disagreed with him, but I also respect the fact that he was one of the few physicians who was a serious healer at a time when there was very little interest in hypnosis. Yeah, and I, I, I was wondering about your own journey through through that because people would look at hypnotherapy and they, they still look at hypnosis as, uh, as sort of like the stage hypnosis that you were talking about. What was your journey going through and in, in actually legitimizing this? Well, uh, it, it, it's an interesting question. I, it wasn't easy, but I just had to do it. You know, I, I knew that I was not taking the easy path. Um, and I thought that what I had to do was just bring science to it. Now, I have other, lots of other colleagues who are doing that, too. It's not just me, but I've published you know, more than 100 papers on hypnosis itself and then a bunch on other things. And it was something of a gamble, you know. I've been able to publish in good journals, uh, publish scientific work, but there are still people that don't take it seriously. And if you want to be mainstream, even in psychiatry, um, you know, you you know, you mostly do medications, that kind of thing, and neurophysiology of drug action and things like that, which is a field I respect. Um, but um, I just felt, you know, this is an area where I, what I do could really make a difference. That that there weren't going to be that many people who were both, you know, uh, research scientists in psychiatry, but who also were interested in hypnosis. And I thought, if I don't do it, who will? And there are a few other people who do, but not that many. And so I just thought, and, and it was, you know, it was just what moved me. It's what drew me. And I could, uh, having, having the multiple experiences of helping people in a hurry uh, using it, uh, it, it helps them, but it helps me too. It gives me a sense of confidence that what I'm doing makes a difference. So I just couldn't not do it. You know, I just felt I had to pursue what just, you know, showed me it could be so helpful to people. Well, I appreciate, I'll, I'll say on behalf of all of us that we appreciate you being a pioneer in this movement. 
Um, right. I'm pretty sure it wasn't easy. And there was a lot of people fighting you along the way as well. Uh, sure. Just like anything. Um, uh, another question, mm -hmm. is there anything that hasn't necessarily been proven by evidence or science about hypnosis that you, that you let's just say, believe to be true? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what I'm what I've been thinking about now, and we're actually writing a paper about now. Uh, Dan is, you know, the the uh, I was part of a committee that came up with a definition of hypnosis a few years ago that is now sort of the accepted uh, definition from the American Psychological Association, and it was, you know, this absorption, dissociation, and suggestibility. And I have always been uncomfortable with that term. I don't like it because the biggest misconception people have is that hypnosis is losing control. It's not, mm -hmm. it's gaining control. And, but that scares people a lot. And they think of the stage show hypnosis. What I've been thinking recently, but hasn't been proven, is, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, children can learn language in a way that adults just can't. You know, they're, they're, and, and I think what, what hypnosis is, in part, is a residue of that childlike ability to soak up information. Mm -hmm. You know, your job as a kid is to program your brain, you know, to, to learn all these things that make your life better when you're a grown up. And so there's an adaptive advantage in being able to just immerse yourself in something new and strange, play with it, absorb it, learn it. And I think hypnosis is a kind of leftover from that wonderful skill we had as kids to really soak things up. And that hasn't yet been proven, but the more I think about it and think about my experience and others' experience, the more I think that's the case, that it's a, it's a, a valuable asset that many of us retain, even as adults, to just engage and immerse yourself in, in absorbing information. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at this from a complete, again, layman's perspective. I'm making associations and you can, you can say they're wrong or not, but does this have to do with say the default mode network and our, our, the common thoughts that go on there and, and what hypnosis does is it changes the, the default network and it allows us the possibility for new thoughts and experiences and identities. I think that's a very astute observation. I completely agree with you. I think it kind of puts the default mode network on pause. It just sort of says, hang on. Let's try it a different way. You know, pretend you've never done it this way before, but try it now and don't even think about the fact that that's not what you usually do. So I think you're absolutely right that uh, that, you know, we used to think, um, uh, Dan, of psychotherapy as, you know, figuring out what's wrong with your thinking, either from a psychoanalytic point of view because of the way you were raised and grew up mm. or from a cognitive behavioral point of view that you just have negative thoughts that keep Trump, you know, replacing positive thoughts so you have to learn to do it differently. I think hypnosis is more bottom up where you're turning down that default mode network and just saying, I don't care who I was or what I was, I wanna see what it would be like to be like this, to do what you did with drinking. You weren't even trying to, to stop drinking. You just thought, well, what would that feel like? You know, And that's sort of more consistent with the way I treat my body in other ways, so I think I'll give it a try. It was not this top-down logical got to do it this way. It was more, let me see what it feels like. And you liked it, felt good. So I think there's a kind of freedom in just cutting loose from the usual way you think about yourself and trying something different. And that's part of why hypnosis can work so rapidly. 
you can just be a different person mm -hmm. who thinks about their body as if it were a baby and won't put tar and nicotine into it or won't stuff more food in it than it wants. Um, so once you try that, you, you see an opportunity to make big changes in a hurry. And, and everyone thinks that they're stuck in this identity, that it is just impossible for them to change. And then That's what right. hypnosis does, it, it gives them at least like the light at the end of the tunnel to say, hey, guess what? You can have new thoughts. You can have new beliefs. You can have new perceptions about yourself. Right. Um, yes, absolutely. This is one of the other questions from, uh, from my Twitter. So everyone's looking for success. You know, everyone wants like more success, more success. So, so one of them asked is like, how can we leverage it? <laughs> How can we leverage hypnosis for business success? I know there's actually one person out there who actually charges like a million dollars to to be their hypnosis or a hypnotherapist for like business success. Um, I forgot what their I forgot what her name was, but I was just like, where Holy did crap. I go wrong, Dan? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh jeez. Um, I mean, like aside from that, hopefully we don't need to invest that amount of money. Um, like, is there any way that we can, like, we did talk about a little bit of changes of identity, all this kind of stuff. So. In what way would you use, say, hypnosis to amplify business success for someone else? Well, I, I think um, being focused and purposeful can be, help you be successful in a lot of ways. And I think the, the nice thing about hypnosis is you can use it the, the way you would before a workout to kind of focus on what you hope to accomplish uh, and why you hope to do it and then do it. And the third part that is the one that gets less attention, but I think can help in, in career success too, is once you've had an episode like that, take a few minutes to go over it in your mind. What did I learn from this? What's worth keeping? What was kind of a dead end and didn't go anywhere? So that you use the hypnosis to both prepare for a useful engagement and then debrief with yourself about it. What worked and what didn't? What do I want to do next? Because often we're not as planful as we could be about assessing experiences we've had. You know, you have a tough business meeting, something went wrong. Take a few minutes to calm your body first, get over the arousal and disappointment and anger or whatever. And then what can I learn from this? What was this guy really trying to say to me? Why did he say it? How could I have handled it better? So I think hypnosis can be a very good way of giving yourself perspective on what you're planning to do, but also what you've done and what would work better next. Would you, I know we're actually like coming up on time. I got so many questions, okay. oh, but uh, <laughs> would you, would you say a journaling practice would be a good, um, would be a good supplement to doing the hypnosis? Sure. I think if people like that and find and, and it'll certainly help you remember what you come up with, mm. uh, I would encourage you to do the kind of, mental review first, and then write down what matters from it. I think writing is fine. I do a lot of it. But um, it, it, the nice thing about just focused thought is that you can let your brain jump to where it wants to go, and you don't necessarily have to have it logically or linear, linear, linearly uh, laid out. You can just kind of, and then when you get that, write it down. That's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... When is there a protocol for for the business success one that we just talked about for, for well we have yeah. we do have a protocol in in the Reverie app called Find Your Focus okay gotcha and it's a way of getting you to think about that and and uh, and also in the workout one you know planning and then debriefing afterwards mm -hmm. so 
the, those two, I think, could be helpful in that regard. Awesome. So if you're listening to this, you ask me the question, you want more business success, then go to there. Uh, go to that protocol. Okay. Uh, okay. So final question. Um, so what would need to happen in the next 10 years time to think that the last 10 years had been a success in regards to, uh, in regards to not just your practice, but also, uh, also bringing hypnosis into the mainstream? Well, uh, thank you for that question. Um, I, I, I hope that hundreds of thousands, millions of people will be able to use reverie as a means of better controlling their mind and their body. I want it, I want it out there. It should be available to everyone. Um, uh, we've done a Spanish translation of the smoking app. It works. Um, I, I would love, I would feel so good if what we've learned can help millions and millions of people live better, yeah. deal with their pain, deal with their stress, change behavior that's causing them a problem and, and live more healthily, uh, be kinder to their themselves and their friends, enjoy their loved ones more. Uh, hypnosis can help you solve problems like that. And I would just feel so good if it were available, not just to the 7,000 people I've seen, to the several hundred thousand who have come in contact with Reverie, but to millions of people who can use it as a tool to enhance their control, help them live better. Yeah, I love that. And uh, it's a part of my regular toolbox, uh, not just training my, my body inside the gym, but it also trains my mind. It's something Great. that uh, I do on a regular basis. It's an app I use on a regular basis. It's on my home screen. And, um, Great. and Great. yeah, and I'm, I'm just so thankful that you created something like this because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to call you up at 3 a.m. in the morning and be like, hey, can you help me sleep? <laughs> <laughs> but I am, I am so thankful for the fact that you have made um, hypnosis accessible to everyone. And, uh, and yeah, I just want to express my appreciation for you and in regards Thank to that. You, Dan. Well, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to talk with you and you get it, you've got it. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that you recognize that and are helping other people to, to learn to benefit from it. That's great. And your program too is terrific. So thank you. I, uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. I've had so much fun in this conversation and uh, I, I could, I could talk to you probably for a very long time, but, but our time is up right now. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I got, I got so Good. many more questions, but, uh, but yeah, we'll, sure. we'll probably do a part two to this, uh, hopefully Good. in person, uh, the next time. I'd be and delighted to do it. hundred percent. So, so David, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on. Uh, definitely appreciate you. And if you are listening to this, uh, where, where can people find the Reverie app? Uh, yeah. So you can go to the app store. If you have an iOS phone to Google play, if you have an Android, and we have a website that will help guide you with that and give you some more information, www.reverie.com. Awesome. So, yeah, if you're listening to this, definitely uh, download the app. I highly recommend it. And, uh, and I can't wait to uh, share this with uh, with everyone that's following me. So, so Dr. Dave, Terrific. thank you so much. Thank I you. appreciate you. You're most welcome, Dan. Take care. Take care. Thank you again for listening to The Dan Go Show. 
we have some amazing episodes coming your way. So make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with someone that you know who'd benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcasting app. Thank you.